Hello, and welcome to A Bowl of Crime Soup, which is a podcast I solely made for a school project that I am doing about court cases. The case I'll be talking about today is called Shank versus the United States. The ruling of this court case was decided in 1919, more specifically on March 3rd of 1919. The two main people involved in this case were Charles Shank and Elizabeth Beer. Most of the details about this case are pretty straightforward, um, except for the fact that it's kind of controversial. Other than that, most of the facts are there, and there's a pretty strong argument for both sides of the case. I'll start off by introducing a little bit of background about the case. The main kind of, you know, player in this case was Shank himself, who was actually a general secretary of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia. Basically, what Shank and Beer did was create many pamphlets and spread them around the city. I already mentioned the year before, but it's important to note that this took place during World War One, which is very important because if this event happened during a time of peace, I don't think this would this case would have even been brought up. I highly even doubt this case would have been a case if it were during a time of peace. However, this was during World War One, like I mentioned, which changes everything. So, going back to Shank and Beer, basically they were passing around these pamphlets. This part is pretty oddly specific, but there were actually 15,000 of these flyers based off of Britannica's website. What the flyers did themselves was deterring people, uh, specifically men, young men, from being drafted into the war. Not only did they do this, but they also told people, well, they advised people to protest peacefully, that's important, peacefully, by explaining that the draft itself technically violated the 13th Amendment, which uh, stated involuntary servitude. It's important to note that prior to this event, the Espionage Act of 1917 was passed by Woodrow Wilson, and we'll get into that later on. It's pretty important to this case. It's basically what the whole thing revolves around. A short summary of this act, it basically outlawed interfering with military operations or recruitment. I got that from Khan Academy. And it also willed citizens to support the U.S. Okay, so the reason this case went to the Supreme Court was because these two people were convicted under the Espionage Act. So this case itself revolves mostly around Shank. When I was looking for research, I didn't see Beer mentioned. Um, so Shank was convicted, arrested, due to interference of these military affairs and recruitment. So the constitutional question itself that was raised was whether Shank's conviction under the Espionage Act violated his First Amendment rights to freedom of speech or not. Before I get to the verdict and the ruling, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Espionage Act, since that's pretty important. I just think it needs a little bit more clarification, so we'll talk about that real quick. I do like how History.com explains it. The main person that enforced this largely, this act, was A. Mitchell Palmer, who was the United States Attorney General under the president, who I mentioned earlier, Woodrow Wilson, during this time. 
Quoting what History.com says, the Espionage Act essentially made it a crime for any person to convey information intended to interfere with the U.S. Armed Forces prosecution of the war effort or to promote the success of the country's enemies. Anyone found guilty of such acts would be subject to a fine of $10,000 and a prison sentence of 20 years, end quote. To add on to the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act was actually added the following year to reinforce this act, which basically just enhanced the rules and the statements of the Espionage Act. It just gave harsher penalties to people that were found guilty of, you know, making false statements that interfered with the persecution of war, insulting or abusing the U.S. government, the flag, the Constitution, or the military. And this was all from History.com once again. So these pieces of legislation were actually put in place to be aimed at specific groups of people. And this was, like I mentioned, multiple times during wartime. So everything's quite different from times of peace. You know, everyone's under a lot of stress, especially the president. And just interfering with things that are part of like the federal government or, you know, the military just seems not improper necessarily, but kind of like a violation because it is, like I said, during a time of war. That's the best I can explain it. It's just the significance of the war. I keep mentioning that, but it makes sense if it makes sense, obviously. Okay, so I kind of got off track there trying to explain why these acts were put in place and how they're used. So, basically, they were put in place against special groups of people, like I mentioned, which included socialites, pacifists, as well as other anti-war activists. And this was, again, during World War I. What's interesting is actually the fact that the Sedition Act was basically repealed by Congress. However, there's still portions of the Espionage Act which are still present in the law today. History.com also mentions one activist that was arrested during this time period who was a labor leader, um, and this was also involved in another case, Eugene versus Debs. And this person was sentenced to 10 years in prison for a speech he made in 1918 in Canton, Ohio, um, criticizing the Espionage Act. In court, Debs appealed the decision and eventually it went to the Supreme Court, and the court upheld his conviction. And his sentence was commuted in 1921, which was after the Sedition Act was repealed. Going back to the case itself, Schenck was actually charged with conspiracy to violate the Espionage Act of 1917, and this was done because... He was apparently trying to interfere with military affairs as well as obstructing recruitment. So one thing I totally realized just now uh, as I was recording, so I wasn't able to put this in before, is the fact that the 13th Amendment was about slavery, abolishing slavery, of course. While it does have involuntary servitude mentioned in it, it's more focused on slavery. Let me let me give a quote from the 13th Amendment. I got this from the website called National Archives. So, the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution provides that neither slavery 
nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the U.S. or any place subject to their jurisdiction. I just wanted to put that in there to note. So going back to the case, as well as Shank and Beer, whom I haven't mentioned too much because she is not mentioned a lot in this case, just vaguely. Like I mentioned before, they were convicted of violating the Espionage Act, and then they appealed on the grounds that the statute violated the, their First Amendment. So the big question is, what was the verdict and how did the court rule in favor or against Shank? The answer to that is the court upheld the Espionage Act and stated that it did not violate Shank's First Amendment right to freedom of speech. And like I've mentioned multiple times, sorry about the repetition, but I'm just trying to pound in this fact. The reason the ruling was this way was because this case occurred during a time of war. It's also important to mention that the vote was unanimous for this, and because the vote was unanimous, there was not a dissenting opinion. I was also unable to find a concurring opinion to the majority, but I did, of course, have access to the majority opinion, which was that the distribution of these flyers disrupted wartime authority as well as conscription to the military. And this opinion was authored by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who also compared the use of these flyers, um, I don't want to say comically, but this is an odd comparison to make. So he basically compared the use of these flyers and, you know, convincing people to protest peacefully during a war to that of screaming fire in a crowded theater um, when there is not a fire. And apparently this is not protected under the First Amendment, which I feel like I've heard before. Like, it sounds familiar. It makes sense. You know, it's like the boy who cried wolf. But it's just kind of bizarre that he included that in there. I don't know. The following quotes that I'm going to be mentioning are from the website Oyez, and they helped me a lot in this case, as well as a lot of other cases that I've learned about in the past. So I'm going to include a little bit more about the majority opinion here, which was authored by, of course, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, whom I will just refer to as Holmes. The most important quote I want to include in here is the following. Holmes concluded that the First Amendment does not protect speech that approaches creating a clear and present danger of a significant evil that Congress has power to prevent. Holmes also believed that these leaflets could be widespread and also prevent or interfere with conscription like I mentioned before which is not helpful since they were in a time of war and they really needed soldiers. So why am I talking about this case? That's the question. Like I mentioned before this is a landmark case which means that it had a big impact in the U.S. as well as it has a great significance and it could also be the foundation for many other cases, and it could also be used as a reference. Starting off, this case actually set the stage for practicing the First Amendment in the U.S. during war times, which also changed the interpretation of the amendment during these kinds of times. According to the website C-SPAN, this expression is still widely used as an example of the limits of free speech, end quote. 
To sum up the significance of this case, it's important because it was like a foundation, a base. It was used to look at many other cases, and it set the stage on how to interpret the First Amendment and seeing that it can have boundaries and restrictions, which also was mentioned before using the fire example, but I didn't really think of that until now. So you all are probably wondering, okay, okay, hold up. She's saying that, oh, this case is used as a foundation. There's other cases that can build off of it. But what are those? I'm getting there. Don't worry. I'll mention those right now. I know I said I was going to mention the cases, but before I do that, I'm actually going to talk about one more thing, which will lead into it. So I mentioned before what Holmes was talking about in the majority opinion, and basically that was related to the clear and present danger test. According to the Cornell Law School, basically this clear and present danger test actually originated from this case, Shank versus the United States. I actually quoted Holmes' words before, which was this, but let me just clarify. The test states that basically um, printed or spoken words cannot be subject of previous restraint or subsequent punishment unless the expression creates a clear and present danger of bringing about a substantial evil. According to the Cornell Law School website, this test must require two independent conditions. The first one states that speech must impose a threat. Substantive evil must follow. The second states that the threat should be real and should be an imminent threat. There's also a scope of the test that's mentioned, which just shows how the test has been applied to different results or cases, which involve some of the following, including criminal prosecutions for opposition to war, statutes penalizing the advocacy of the overthrow of the government by force or violence, attacks on courts or judges or contempt proceedings against lawyers, picketing, regulation of prison inmates' access to newspapers, periodicals, and so forth, incitement to commit crimes, etc. There's a lot more that are mentioned right here, but those are just some of them. In short, this just means that the government can't interfere with speech unless that speech or, you know, written speech presents a clear or present danger that will lead to, like I mentioned before, evil or illegal acts. Now that I've explained that test a little bit more, I can move on to the cases that have actually used this. So the first one that's mentioned in the website mtsu.edu, it's called the First Amendment Encyclopedia, is Gitlaw versus New York, which took place in 1925. I actually used the test to uphold a conviction under New York's Criminal Anarchy Law of 1902 for distributing a socialist pamphlet, but actually the Justice Holmes is mentioned here again, and another justice dissented on this case. Then, in 1951, in Dennis versus United States, this test was used again to deal with communism. Finally, in 1969, in Brandenburg versus Ohio, this test was used once again, where the court allowed only for the punishment of illegal action when, quote, 
Such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing eminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action, end quote. Moving on, I just want to put in my input about this case. Of course, my opinions have nothing to do with the case itself. It's just how I feel about it. I don't necessarily want to say I'm biased because I can understand both sides of the case, which you all could probably see because I kept going on and on about how I understand how these people are trying to practice their First Amendment right by stating what they believe is right, you know, spreading the word. And it's also important to mention that Shank and Beard did not condone the use of violence. They mentioned that they recommended people use protesting peacefully if they were to do something about it, the conscription that is. Of course, the unfortunate part is the fact that Shank's actions were not supported by the Constitution. In my opinion, I think it's kind of unfair that people can get in trouble for voicing their opinions, but it's also understandable for this case specifically, just because the fact that Shank and Beer's actions were basically interfering with military operations. Of course, it doesn't say how widespread this movement actually was, so we don't really know that, and I couldn't find that anywhere, you know, the influence or the public viewpoint of this case. I just looked at the legal viewpoint of this case, and I'm putting my opinions in based upon solely that. So the Espionage Act itself, you know, there's a reason that it was implemented to prevent people from basically trying to wreak havoc chaos during a time of stress, pressure. World War I was devastating for many people, so it's understandable, you know, they really want to focus all of their energy into this war rather than having other obstacles, you could say. I'm being a little bit repetitive by stating this, but it's also important to note, you know, Schenck was advising people to protest peacefully. He was pretty professional about it from what I gathered looking at just the facts because he didn't throw a tantrum or do anything inappropriate. He didn't slander anyone's names or anything like that. He just advised people to know their rights and really understand what they're getting themselves into through drafting. I think what I really wish was that this case as well as other cases were just straightforward, just in black and white, but there's so many gray areas and that's something you can't avoid because we're all human. At the end of the day, you know, we learned a lot from this case. It's been implemented into other cases, and I think I've learned a lot from this case as well. That's all I have. Remember to always put your cereal in before you do your milk and use a spoon, never a fork.